Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Since Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, the international community has been working to learn lessons from the war to determine new trends in high-intensity war fighting and how it will shape future conflicts. The lessons can both help improve capabilities to deter future adversaries like China or help beat them in a potential conflict. For many, this war is akin to the Spanish Civil War that presaged World War II and how the bigger conflict would be fought. Joining us today to discuss the lessons from Ukraine's eight-year war with Russia is Dr. Phil Carber, the president of the Potomac Foundation Think Tank. He has helped shape U.S. strategy since leaving the Marine Corps in 1968, worked closely with the legendary founder and longtime director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment, Andy Marshall, where he helped craft net assessments of Russia and Chinese capabilities. In 1981, he was hired by then Defense Secretary Cap Weinberger to craft U.S. nuclear strategy to counter Moscow's massive investment in tactical nuclear weapons, staging an unprecedented nuclear war game, Proud Profit, to force leaders to think about the unthinkable. He also founded the Strategic Concepts Development Center, Uh, That became the Institute for National Security Studies at the National Defense University and participated in the influential study of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. He has studied uh, Russia's war on Ukraine in extraordinary detail, visiting the country 39 times and spending more than six months on the front lines, uh, most recently, uh, just a few uh, weeks ago. Uh, And he is writing the latest lessons learned study uh, for the Ukrainian and US governments. His uh, 2015 study was particularly influential. Uh, Phil, uh, thanks very much for joining us. And it's a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you, Lago. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure, and I should say that this conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and is devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, uh, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation, uh, and our daily coverage is sponsored by Bell. Uh, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, as I mentioned. Uh, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage uh, and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's uh, annual meeting and trade show last week was sponsored by Safran and Leonardo DRS. Uh, Phil, uh, his conversation has been a long time coming, so thanks so much for making time for us. Um, You have taught strategy Strategy uh, at Georgetown GW SICE. You've lectured around the world, including to the Russian uh, Staff College a long time ago when relations were not quite as bad as they are now. Um, I, I want to start off with, you know, your uh, a question normally we ask later in the program, but thought I would put right up front for you. What are examples of good strategy worth emulating? Uh, and what are examples of bad strategy that should serve as uh, a warning? at a time when everybody recognizes the strategy now is really, really important and we can no longer whistle past a whole bunch of graveyards that we've been whistling past. By the way, before we start, I always want to congratulate you on having a really good uh, series. It's a, 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 a very unique and, and uh, I applaud your, your uh, continuing efforts. Um, <clears throat> so for a bad strategy, uh, and I'd relate it to, to, to the current example of Russia, one of the few advantages of this of this uh, recent uh, invasion by Russia of Ukraine is that we have better insight into what Putin's strategic objectives were. So he's made it very clear 
that his objectives are not just related to uh, the Donbass or uh, securing uh, access to Crimea. Uh, it is to essentially, and, and he was very, very, uh, both in this uh, uh, year, year ago August statement and this statements just before the invasion. Uh, it was incredibly uh, candid. He goes, I'm not trying to bring back the Soviet Union. I am trying to bring back the Russian Empire. And, and, and he then goes on to say that the areas inside the Russian Empire, those people have a right to exist, as long as they're nice, uh, but they don't have the right to be independent states. And so you say, okay, where, where does he draw that line? Well, that, that Russian Empire that would be that restoration would include Finland, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, much of Poland, uh, uh, Ukraine, Belarus, Romania, da 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 da. And it was it, it, it's it's absolutely um, uh, stunning the uh, ambition uh, reflected in, in that. So back in 2014, uh, he uh, several times called uh, uh, raised the issue of Novorossiya uh, seizing the southern part of Ukraine from uh, Kharkiv all the way to Transnistria, and uh, which is now basically where, where much of the fighting is currently going on. Um, but and the, and, the, and his trolls and his uh, separatists sort of pursued that line, and then they kind of dropped it and, and sort of focused on, oh, we're here to protect the poor Russian population, which was essentially deceptive. Uh, right. uh, and so what's interesting now is is that 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 line, even though it's still spewed occasionally, uh, or uh, the trolls say, oh, you NATO expansion threaten us. Um, what what, what what was really interesting is 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 how clear he was in terms of his strategic objective. And then when you look at it and you say, okay, however this war turns out, like let's say, you know, hopefully not, but he ends up, you know, destroying Ukraine or, or, or winning half of it, uh, devastating it, um, going to even, if it even turns into a, a, a Russia-NATO war, which I, I don't think, uh, it, it's going to, but you, you go look at his position. Finland and Sweden, for, throughout the Cold War, insisted on being neutral, are now part of NATO. Right. He's basically he's basically lost control of of the of the black of the uh, Baltic Sea. Uh, he's unified NATO in a way that, that seemed miraculous <laughs> even a year ago. Um, the, the, not to mention whatever pain and isolation he's feeling in sanctions. And you can argue that one is kind of a mixed bag, particularly with his playing the, the oil card. Uh, he, his, his alignment, and I'll come back to his alignment with, with, with China, maybe if, you, if you'd like to sort of explore that. But certainly, uh, uh, he, he has to have cast some degree of uh, discomfort among the leadership in Beijing over like, uh, wow, do we really, is this guy really as good a, a solid an ally as we had hoped? Um, so, so when you sort of look, and then not to mention, he takes and moves his, for the, 
unprecedented since the end of the Second World War. He, he moves 12 armies, you know, more than half of them from central, southern, and, and including five armies from the Far East into in Ukraine, at least the elements of them, has them essentially eviscerated. Right. So the vaunted, you know, red, red army or the Russian steamroller looks like uh, uh, pathetic. And then the, he, he calls up national mobilization and more guys flee the country than he can mobilize. Right. And you go, what? Talk about a strategy coming apart at the seams. Um, so uh, it, it, it and, and I, I find myself frequently when I look at various things he, he's uh, done and what he says, particularly when he talks about nuclear weapons, I go, it's delusional. And you right. kind of wonder what, what, you know, what, what planet this guy is on in, in terms of now that doesn't necessarily, you know, it kind of makes him a clown, but that doesn't mean he's not, not dangerous. You know, it's interesting, Phil, uh, that you said that, right? I mean, because, uh, um, you know, people think that autocrats are actually about stability, but actually they're actually willing to take more risk, which is what makes them particularly dangerous, right? Everybody around them is used to lying to them. He's the apex autocrat. Uh, and I thought it was also interesting the differentiation you made because he talks about Rus, which is Russia, Russia but Russia, which is the Russian world that he sees in his imperial uh, sphere, uh, right, which is what he always tends to talk about. So as you said, he outed himself as the latest in a long line of Russian imperialists, even if he's letting his empire decay, uh, right? I mean, Azer you know, it took the United States to, you know, and Turkey to get involved to stop wars between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, something that Russia would have tried to control uh, in, in, in its sense. T talk to us about examples of good strategy now, right? So we have a very, very good example of, of a very bad strategy. What's an example of a very good strategy that's worth emulating? So, you know, without sounding uh, self-serving or political, I, I think uh, in the sense of uh, a partisan, uh, I, I think the, the, the strategy as it evolved in the Reagan administration is, is a pretty good example. And, 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 and it's the part of it that I would call competitive strategy. It didn't come easy. So when the Reagan administration first, first came into uh, office, there were essentially three competing visions of how to deal with uh, the uh, increasingly uh, belligerent uh, uh, Soviet Union. Uh, one uh, from the Carter administration had been to build up and focus on uh, uh, re rebuilding uh, NATO and particularly our forces in Central Europe. We'd been at a hollow army and so forth. And the Carter administration had laid that out in quite a bit of detail in the Army, U.S. Army and Air Force had combined in, their, uh, in developing air land battle um, to kind of uh, focus on that, but they hadn't really funded it well. Uh, a second was the uh, naval strategy. Oh, we're going to build a 600 ship Navy and Russia can, if Russia seizes Central Europe, then we can run around and seize the Kola Peninsula or uh, Far East or so forth. Uh, and then the third sort of approach was, was sort of going backwards to the uh, Eisenhower administration. Which, oh, well, we're going to, you know, uh, uh, depend on nuclear weapons and scare the hell out of them and have a, a, a nuclear competition. In the end, uh, and, and, and there was sort of a, a resistance to, to do a pick number one in the central region uh, because, uh, 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 well, well, that's the previous administration. We want to do something different. The, so at first there was this attitude of, okay, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's spend our, our, our way out of this or spend our way into a strategy. You know, and, and 
uh, uh, spending money is not a, is, is not a strategy. Um, and so I, relative, by, by about 83, it became apparent that uh, we couldn't continue the rate of buildup that was going on. And so the, the, uh, it was a switch and a kind of real, uh, uh, cold realism that said, okay, um, we have to play smart, not rich. And that then began the development. And part of it was, uh, at least with Weinberger, was uh, the results of a proud profit, the exercise that he had participated in, uh, he and, and the chairman, which is the only exercise that tested U.S. war plans all the way up to from, from crisis to a full thermonuclear war. Uh, that had been participated in by um, uh, Secretary of Defense up till then and since, by the way. And he had learned a lot in the process. And, and so that really developed a, a, a promotion for this concept of a competitive strategy. It took him a couple of years. Uh, by the way, Andy Marshall had been sort of the father of that, though uh, it, it took several others to kind of get it inside the, the, the Weinberger's uh, uh, approach. Yeah. And, um, and and so then by the mid 80s, and, and, and in the end, it worked, uh, you ended up having uh, a competition and the and so there was a, a riddle of the of, of the strategic arms race or, you know, the, the Cold War, how do you get how do you win an arms race without going to war, a war that you, you, you really can't afford and don't want to fight. And the, and the answer is get the other side to quit. And, and, and then that generally worked. Now, when we had done some projections about competing with Russia and how long would it take, frankly, we thought it would take to the end of the 20th century. So they, they basically collapsed even faster in part because we'd underestimated some of their costs and so forth and inefficiencies. But anyway, I, I think that there's, and I'm not trying to promote, in, uh, again, just, you know, say, oh, well, this is how we did. And, uh, but I think taking a competitive strategy approach is really critical and it's and, and, and while we have elements of it today i don't think we really have focused at we, we tend to be much more reactive than proactive and i think we've sort of are haven't appreciated yet that we're really dealing with not a bipolar competition but a tripolar historically pre-nuclear uh tripolarity is is inherently unstable uh the the uh uh, two, two always gang up on one. And as we, we've seen since, uh, for maybe about the last six, seven years, if you paid really careful attention to it, increasing strategic alliance, they admit it, a strategic bonding right. between uh, Moscow and Beijing. And I don't think we've really put our, our own mind into that mindset of, okay, uh, what if we're really, you know, we have uh, us and our friends on in both Pacific and Europe, but how do we and our friends uh, uh, deal with this uh, uh, a, 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 a dynamic or dangerous um, uh, tripolar environment where those two are increasingly together? You're 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 now getting to uh, the very heart of uh, you know what Peter Rodman used to discuss a long time ago, the late great Peter Rodman, and would say. You know, as a disciple of Kissinger, it's important to always keep the Chinese and the Russians apart. And in fact, our, in fact, our accommodations to either of them has been designed to sort of keep them separated uh, effectively. Um, the Biden administration has put, and I want to get to the Ukraine war in a second, but the Biden administration has thoughtfully now said, wait a minute, you can't appease one without empowering the other. Vladimir Putin has to lose in Ukraine. 
Otherwise, the Chinese will be uh, empowered. So it is important for us to be consistent. Uh, but one of your 13 uh, lessons about competitive strategy is how you can drive events rather than be driven by them, both in pre-conflict uh, as well as during a, a potential uh, campaign. Uh, and as you said now, we're getting into a little bit of a nightmare scenario and a scenario I think which should have been abundantly clear to anybody. You know, whether you're in Moscow, whether you're in Beijing, Pyongyang or Tehran, you have common cause and there'll be a whole bunch of other countries that will play both sides. Saudi Arabia being a good example of that. Right. The administration just released this national security strategy, Phil. What does the right competitive strategy for this era look like, given what the stakes are? Oh, $64,000. I thought I'd ask it to somebody who's actually done it, right? What is it? Because we're we're being, you know, it, it's apparent that we are changing. We are changing for the better. We're trying to be much more consistent. Um, you know, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't help where, you know, the Republican leader in the House says, you know, if we take over, you know, we're going to dial back aid to Ukraine or, or not give it a blank check. But I think people understand what that means. Yeah. What, what, what does what does the thoughtful strategy look like now, given the complexity of the situation that we're in? So, uh, first of all, uh, I, I think you cannot have a viable strategy uh, in, in against that the duo uh, unless it's bipartisan. Uh, I remember uh, one point in 2014, General Clark, you know, former NATO commander uh, and uh, a Democratic candidate in 2004, uh, he and I were in Ukraine. And at one point, he, uh, we were at the front and he turns to me and he says, you know, Phil, we would not have won the Cold War if we had the current level of, of uh, partisanship in the United States. And, and it's, it hit me like a knife uh, in, in the heart. And I, and I believe that to be true. Um, and I think we have to really <clears throat> wake up. We do not have we do not have the luxury of taking uh, domestic politics and a whole series of, of, of domestic issues that are divisive and letting them uh, be so preoccupied with them that we uh, uh, basically refuse to develop a bipartisan uh, security strategy vis-a-vis -vis a combo of Russia and China. And uh, I think that is a strategic mistake. So then the, the second thing is, is sort of a recognition that um, uh, democracy, and we come back to this later if you'd like, but, but democracies don't do long wars well. Uh, and uh, the the so we need to, you need to have not only a game plan but you need to have of, of competition but you need to be able to visualize kind of what the end state of that is we have assumed for 30 years okay and you know the the, the jury was out until recently well uh, we'd assume that well um you know russia and china would finally get it and they would sort of they may not democracy they would finally evolve and understand join the world economic system and feel and finally have more to benefit from it than trying to revise uh, be revisionist powers and start problems uh and they would kind of become you know uh players and recognize the international commons and so forth and so on well that that has not worked so then the, the question is, how do you how do you treat that? We have played the we've tried to play various times and, uh, and others have sort of the, the China card. Uh, 
it was interesting uh, back in the in the uh, uh, mid '60s or early '60s when China was first developing its nuclear weapons. We actually thought about doing a preemptive hit on China's uh, nascent uh, fissile material production and discussed it with the Russians. And the, interesting, and the Russians uh, did not leak it to the Chinese. When they, uh, because of the disputes with the Chinese in 69, were thinking about um, military action and raised it with us, the first thing uh, we did is jump on an airplane and run to Beijing and go and blab and try to take advantage of it. Um, not, neither side has been able to essentially exploit the Chinese card. They're going to do whatever's in their strategic interest and trying to, to just kind of woo one or the other away, uh, uh, I think is uh, kind of um, uh, elusive and hard to, to uh, I, I, the, the, the approach, I think, is, to, is when one of the two get out of the box, that is, they are doing things that threaten the international system and the security of us and our friends, is you then have to respond to that one and take them on and decisively, decisively uh, uh, defeat them or at least make them so sorry that they started it, that they, that they quit and, run and go back. And, and even in Ukraine today, I don't believe we have done that yet to send them the kind of message to China of just how resolute we are. Um, I, I worry that that, that conflict's not over and, uh, and the longer it drags on, the more the Chinese uh, um, may not get that, that message as strong as they, as they should. Uh, and, and, but it also would go in reverse. If, if the China, in five years from now, if the Chinese are making a run at Taiwan, uh, Russia is kind of back in the box, uh, <laughs> licking their wounds, uh, you need to also send that, that message uh, the other way. Uh, uh, but when you respond, it has to be uh, ensure a decisive defeat, not let it drag on. Um, you've you've always said that the most dangerous uh, you've always said that the most dangerous conflicts are the ones where the lines of you know sort of victory are blurred. Uh, that um, because now neither side is trying to lose. It's unclear what victory is and how this ends. We we are concerned, and we can get to the nuclear question in a second. The administration, this administration, appears to have made sort of that recognition. Uh, it's important to be the adult in the room. You shouldn't be incendiary, um, but that you need to be consistent about this and and why it's important for Russia to lose and Ukraine to win and the message that it sends China. And yet the concern is that while the administration does the right thing it's still a little bit slow in reacting or maybe a little bit too deliberative. Thankfully, we really have um, you know, brushed aside a lot of the worries that we had early on about how dangerous Putin was going to be. You know, this, this you know, petrifying fear of cornering, uh, or cornering Russia. Um, from your standpoint, I mean, what is the administration getting right and where can it be, do better in the course of this conflict to be better prepared for what happens with China, which would be a, a much more potentially dangerous ball game. And I've tried really hard to uh, uh, not not be a, a, a critic of the administration over the last, um, as this process has gone on, things they got right. They recognized uh, early, I think to their utter shock in uh, September, October of last year, 
that, that Russia was actually going to mobilize and redeploy his armed forces. And, and that, uh, when they, when they ask the Russians, are you really thinking about, about launching a major war? And what, I don't know the exact answer, but clearly they go, uh, oh, they just may do it. And so they really did go out of the way in, in a, in a unique way that's very seldom done by administrations, uh, at least in the post second world war period. Uh, and, 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 and warn allies, warn and warn the potential victim of what was coming. Uh, and now, so, so I, I think that was very, very, uh, uh, they really deserve a lot of, a lot of kudos for that. Uh, I think they have been, uh, once the war started, uh, they identified uh, weaponry that could, um, Ukrainians could integrate fairly rapidly and uh particularly infantry weapons or small uh, smaller weapons whether it was stinger or javelin uh in laws uh that, that did make a difference and um and and they could get them there fairly in, in fairly large number and fairly fast i think that was wise i think they also did an excellent job of working with the allies and and not you know, the reality is that it's not for nothing that, that, that NATO has the reputation of, you know, uh, uh, no action talk only. And, and not a lot happens in the alliance or European security for that matter. Like, oh, we have to have a Euro uh, a, a defense system. Yeah, they've been talking about it for 50 years and still haven't, it's still haven't done anything. Uh, nothing really happens unless the U.S. takes the lead. On the other hand, when the U.S. gets too pushy uh, and bully and, and goes around, and goes, oh, there's new Europe and there's old Europe, and, um, the, the, you, you actually build resistance. So I think the, the uh, allies, the administration really did a phenomenally good job uh, of playing this like a Stradivarius and leading, not leading from behind, but leading in, in areas where we would take the initiative, but also letting others take the initiative and getting the gang t uh, together. Um, I, 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 honestly, God, I, I think it was a phenomenal job. Um, I think, on the other hand, so so those are those are some, some what I consider positives. Uh, you know, and, and, and lastly, I think also working the financial, uh, the economic support, because uh, it, it's, it's serious when a country like Ukraine, I mean, the destruction, I, I was trying to do a calculus the last time I was in uh, this last trip to Ukraine. And by my count, the cost of their rebuilding is going to be the equivalent of kind of like 20 years of their GDP. I mean, it the the the, the cost of that war for them are horrific. So having European financial support uh, and so forth is, is very helpful. Um, so those are all the positives. On the negative, their action and so having recognized what the russians were doing in the fall nonetheless we didn't really respond to it and yeah there's this, this uh, 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 there's an old saying but by tom Schelling, who was a colleague of mine actually helped me do a proud prophet and was one of my professors at harvard um, uh, he has a classic line that the democrats generally play uh, you use a, a lot whether they know it's from him or not you know um the threat of what is to come is is much more impactful than damage already done, and that leads you sort of to a graduated response, one that did not succeed well in the Vietnam War. Um, but the argument is, well, you know, we're holding back, and so fair enough. So, so let's say you're 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 taking that approach. Nonetheless, 
when the other side is doing stuff, that means you need to calibrate a, a response at least equal to that. If you don't respond equal, in a, in a, not, not symmetrically, but in a, of equal magnitude and intensity, uh, basically you're not sending that message. So, uh, uh, and in that sense, we didn't really respond because we didn't right. want to escalate. Uh, and and that, that, that attitude has been th throughout the conflict. You, know, you just think about it for a second. Russia can fire missiles, thousand kilometers, not only from Russia, but from Belarus, they can fire them over NATO territory, like Romania, they fire them over the Black Sea. Right. And it's escalatory if we let the, give the Ukrainians a, 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 a system that can fire 100 kilometers? I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and that, 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 that asymmetry, asymmetry is, 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 is actually sends exactly the wrong, the, the wrong message. Now, uh, so there's uh, one of the pro so, so I, I think both in the in the in the response to the Russian mobilization and then as the, over the course of this conflict uh, since uh, 24 February, the U.S. has had responses, but I don't think our responses have been um, proportionate to the escalation of the other side. Uh, Herman Kahn used to have an argument um, make. Uh, about how do you deal with escalation without letting it go uh, crazy? And he called it the Talmudic response. Eye for eye, you know, tooth for tooth. So you try, you, you pick a level of intensity and magnitude that is proportionate to the other guy's escalation. And I think that has been a significant uh, uh, error on our part. Uh, okay. Also, a failure to anticipate, and, and, and we can talk about in far more detail, but a failure to anticipate what would be needed next. So it's one thing to have a flood of small uh, light weapons that infantry can rapidly uh, adapt. But if the conflict goes on, you have to recognize that, the, that the, our, our side, the Ukrainian side, is going to lose their heavy weapons. They've already lost 70% of all their armored vehicles, uh, 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 non-tanks, 50% of their tanks. Uh, they, they basically have a handful of aircraft left. You can't do that solve that problem overnight. You got to put in the, uh, a, a process of, of training and preparation and setting us aside so that if and when the conflict continues, those systems can can uh, eventually be available and apply uh, 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 when needed. And, and we haven't done that. And I think many people would agree with you, Phil, right? I mean, that we've you know, had these Talmudic debates about, you know, well, MiG-29s or not, or, um, you know, at the end of the day, any any country um, that was using Soviet weapons, Soviet or Russian weapons should be shipping them and should be backfilled by Western systems uh, to make it easy, if not directly sending them. I mean, these guys will figure out how to use F-16s, uh, you know, even if the maintenance may be a little bit more complicated. There are all sorts of ways for us to do this, uh, and we should be doing it because this war isn't you know, I think people have this tendency of thinking, oh, the war is almost over. Ukrainians have made such progress. Russia is having mobilization problems. You know, it's still a country that lost about 10 million people uh, that have left the country uh, going up against the country of 140, 150 million people that's allied with China, uh, North Korea and Iran are helping them. Uh, right. I mean, so it's a different ballgame. Let me take you to the question of actual. So, 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 so uh, can, can, I, can I address that? First? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so have has the Russian military suffered a, a horrific defeat? Yes. Uh, is Putin's mobilization uh, counterproductive? Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, uh, uh, well informed people, including friends of mine, can say, oh, well, you know, Russia may collapse. And, and, and they may. I, I, I'm not Nostradamus. I can't predict. Uh, I, they may be more, I'm worried they may be more resilient. You know, we, we can hope that, but uh, uh, hope is not a strategy. Um, the, right. the, the thing that concerns me is, is um, what we tend to, what Western analysts tend not to appreciate. And in part, because everybody, you know, just, there's a phrase, you know, we're all Ukrainians now. Well, that means we're all Ukrainian experts now. So every every guy who's right. ever had a, had a, had a you know, you had lieutenant colonels who've never been to Ukraine popping up on CNN going, oh, opining, oh, this, and you got generals who, who wouldn't know. <laughs> it, 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 there's, it, there's a lot of kind of, you know, uh, uh, external commentary. And some of it's really quite good. I'm not saying they shouldn't or, 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 or just say Chris. What they tend, not having the, the field experience or the on-site experience, is they tend not to appreciate that this is a two-sided contest. Yeah, right. there's all these problems with Russia. What kind of hits are the Ukrainians taking? Right. And, and when you go, whoa, you know, they've lost 70% of all their armored vehicles. They've lost 50% of their tanks. Uh, yes, yeah, some of them can be made up by by captured Russian uh, uh, tanks. Some of them can be made up by, uh, uh, by uh, uh, NATO members sending old Soviet systems. But those are all crews. The, the, the crews, uh, a lot of crews, tend to be be lost. Uh, and it and even repairing the old systems takes time. Russia has purpose. What's not generally realized is Russia has targeted the Ukrainian defense industry and drastically um, uh, 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 damaged their ability to reconstitute equipment and get spare parts and so forth. Hardly anybody talks about it. People don't talk about the losses the Ukrainian units have taken. So the active force has taken uh, 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 substantial losses, right? And then so you replace those with reservists. Okay, well, they're not quite as well trained and well integrated right. as the active then what they take the uh, casualties and then you replace them with uh, volunteers and then you replace them with territorials each step the the crew training the quality of the of the, of the, of the people uh, not their motivation just just their inherent uh, uh, or their uh, military professionalism is is going a step down i mean right. you take you, every every ukrainian uh, brigade, uh, uh, not counting the territorials, every brigade, active brigade and reserve brigade are all on the line. There is no operational or strategic reserve. And, and they have been on the line for 200 days. So you say, oh, well, admit it in low and even in low intensity combat, it's not unusual to take 1% losses per day. Right. And you go, wait a minute. <laughs> You've, you've, you've lost 200 percent of your force now obviously not everybody's had equal loss but we, we under grossly underestimate the, the so the last time i was in in ukraine uh, uh that's my last comment a point uh, on the way in i was going to Lviv, and and the the uh a russian missile strike is is, hit, is hitting the uh the the rail yards and, and, and the electrical power at Lviv. And, and when I left, there was an air, air uh, I was in, boarding a train in, in a blackout in, uh, in Kiev, and uh, there was an air, air, uh, air raid over uh, Kiev that was also focused on, guess what, 
the electrical system of the railroad. So a couple months ago, I, I said in several interviews, they said, watch out, the Russians are, are, tar are trying to target the Ukrainian electrical grid. Yeah, there's a, an effect on, you know, cities and putting people in the dark, and particularly as winter comes, it's, it's nasty when gas is cut off. But more significantly, militarily, right. the, uh, the Ukrainian railroads are five foot gauge, not the normal, not the Western four foot eight inch right. gauge. 95% of their road locomotives, are, that means not, not switchers, but locomotives going long distance, are are electrical so if right. you could take out the electrical uh power for the rail system you essentially cut off the ukrainian ability to resupply from the west or to strategically move forces around uh, it, it is a horrific vulnerability and unfortunately the, the, the there aren't any western countries with five foot gauge and you know steam locomotives or diesel locomotives to 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 offer them so right. it's it's a, a serious vulnerability and i think it, it has not been highlighted in the recent discussion with people oh they're now they're targeting the electric grid it isn't just to make the cities dark uh it is having a a, 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 a potentially strategic impact on their logistics uh, we've got about uh, 10 minutes or so uh, uh, left, Phil, and I, uh, I've got to ask you three questions. Uh, and one of them is, you know, you have been uh, on the ground there more than most people. What are, you know, and, and people are drawing all sorts of sweeping generalizations on lessons, right? Armor is not useful. Uh, attack aviation doesn't work. Hey, look, you know, it's the importance of long range fires uh, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, cyber importance of logistics and, and good morale. From your standpoint, having been on the front lines, what are the most important lessons uh, worth learning about what the future of conflict holds across all domains? Because we've seen capability demonstrated in every single domain in this conflict, including the importance of space and data and, you, right. you know, you name it, right? I mean, you know, uh, Eric, Eric Schmidt, formerly of Alphabet, has called it, right, the first broadband war. From your standpoint, what are, what are the most trenchant warfare lessons from this conflict? Well, from the tactical sort of on up, I, I mean, obviously, and I, I said this in my report, 2015 report for John McMaster and the Army, um, and people sort of criticize you. Oh, well, you know, you see swarms of swarms of uh, UAVs. Well, uh, the, the whole UAV dimension is is new in warfare, and 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 it certainly can have enormous uh, dramatic impact. In fact, you could even say that Russians uh, successful. Uh, of the last several weeks of the use of the Osiranian uh, drones to attack uh, 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 civilian infrastructure targets is, is, it has a huge impact. So this, it isn't just on the battlefield that they're having uh, an, a significant effect. And the antidote is, has not really been well developed. I mean, part of, yes, you can, you, there are air defense systems, you can shoot them down, but it, you tend to be on the wrong side of that curve. You know, the cost of, of, of the things to shoot them down is much higher than, and more expensive, and you have fewer of them, you can't, you can't attack. So that's a significant area. Uh, I don't think the jury is out yet on how long lasting that competition is because uh, there's still an interplay of what you can do in terms of electronic warfare and other counter systems. It's just going to take a while for that to cook off. So I wouldn't say, oh, well, UAVs are, you know, decisive and they're going to be applying everywhere for the next 30 years. I think there will be counters to it, but it, 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 is, a, it is a new development, just like the uh, 
uh, uh, introduction of tanks and, and air, aircraft were in the Spanish Civil War. Um, not, not necessarily, though, that as, as people did then, <laughs> some drew the wrong lessons. Um, the, you're right in terms of the, the, the communications and C cubed I aspects of it. Uh, and certainly Ukraine has benefited enormously from having real time uh, intelligence and surveillance. Uh, there, and, and, and it plays, there's, a, there's an interesting phenomenon. It's like, uh, and I don't want to sound like Chicken Little, but there is, a, a, if you sort of play that out, whoever gets the last look has a strategic advantage before the lights go out. Um, and, and, and so, so increasingly, I think people are going to be thinking about, and particularly our adversaries, about, okay, if the U.S. has this enormous advantage in uh, surveillance, uh, how do we take it out? How do we deal with those uh, you know, uh, satellites in low, low Earth orbit and so forth? Uh, so it's, just, it's some interesting things to think about. In terms of cyber, it's a hard read. Um, I'm more worried about electronic warfare, at least in terms of the battlefield than I am cyber. Uh, and, and to be quite honest, it's, it's such a dark world, it's hard to really get an impression. Yes, the Russians seem to have stuff, and the Chinese seem able to suck our defense industry out, but you know, part shame on us uh, for not being better protected. Um, uh, but I, I, it's not, at times, I think cyber is, it, uh, is frankly over uh, overplayed relative to other phenomena. I do not believe that the main battle tank or armored vehicles are uh, obsolete. I think that there, there are some trends that people, uh, we ought to be focused on. For one thing is the vulnerability of putting a bunch of guys in a box and driving them around. Uh, I think you're going to end up having an armored vehicle per, 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 uh, you're going to split the squads in half, have two armored, if you can afford it, two armored vehicles, uh, and, and also have them better protected. Uh, the light armored deal, yeah, they're great for driving around, um, maybe internal security, but you know, escorting armor, uh, the light, the light vehicles get stripped out and then the tanks are vulnerable. Uh, yeah, heavy main battle tanks, um, uh, uh, have their challenges and complexity. We maybe have made them overly sophisticated considering operators that are running and the nature of the battlefield environment. Uh, and we might want to think about new generation of uh, using more automation, automatic loaders, reducing size of the crew. That's what being able to reduce the, the weight by 10, 15 tons and still have high, um, high horsepower to weight ratio and, and high protection, but their role is still significant. Same, same with aviation, uh, having aircraft uh, that have strike capability and dual capability uh, is, is uh, extremely powerful. There, there are places where A-10s could have a field day in Ukraine if the Ukrainians had them. Um, now, obviously, in certain areas, they're going to take high, high, high losses. But, you know, if you organize your seed, your suppression of air defenses and, and or, or are operating where the, it's a high degree of fluidity and the air defense systems are 
uh, not well set up and integrated, there is a role for attack helicopters and for close air support. So I, I think one liners about this is extinct and this is, are, are, are wrong. And of course, we haven't even really seen the play of true stealth in, in Ukraine. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, and and there are uh, uh, those and obviously General Thomas is the sponsor of this program, but a number of voices have said, hey, let's get some Reapers over there uh, because they could have a dramatic effect, just like by rock have have had in terms of being able to strike uh, and surveil uh, and and perform a lot of other missions. So, Let me so ask you. I, about I, this. By the way, I, I without, without playing, I have no no link to General Atomic other than a friend of mine happens to run that program. But I've been arguing for General Atomic, both the surveillance and the and the strike uh, systems uh, get uh, uh, either given to Ukraine or uh, available to them on lease, which they can do uh, since 2015. Right. So, I, Indeed, indeed. And, and, and it goes with, um, obviously, you know, F-16s, A-10s, and a number of other capabilities. Let me, I, I, we're, we're running short on time. I have to ask you uh, the, the nuclear question. Um, and uh, you wrote a very, uh, uh, Paul Brecken uh, wrote uh, a great essay. This is going back about a decade ago that revealed Proud Prophet. Um, and I have, you know, spoken for a long time, as you have, that we're in a neo-nuclear age and have to get serious about where we are. Um, now, it looks like the administration has wargamed a number of strategies, whether single use demonstration, multiple, how we respond, nuclear, conventional. From your standpoint, um, you know, you studied the utility of tactical nuclear weapons at the height of the Cold War at the time the Russians were investing a lot of money in it. Prob Profit tested that. Um, from your standpoint, does it go nuclear? How do we deter it? How do we respond um, to it? Because it's not a panacea and it's not an easy answer. And it also doesn't look like the West is gonna pack up its cards and go home. In statement after statement, NATO leaders, American leaders, British leaders, you name it, have made clear, if you think you're gonna use nuclear weapons and somehow we're gonna wet our pants and run away, you're in for another thing, Vlad. How do we need to think about where we are? Uh, well, and what it tells us about what we have to be ready for at a time when the Chinese are investing a lot of money in their nuclear capabilities, in part to deter our nuclear advantages and conventional advantages. So first of all, we need to recognize that the, the Russians have an asymmetrical capability in tactical nuclear weapons. They have uh, uh, warheads for the 152 uh, millimeter, particularly the MISTA self-propelled artillery piece. Um, they have uh, for the 203 long range gun and they have it for the 240 uh, heavy mortar, which was uh, their ER device. And these range from uh, sub kiloton to tw literally 20 tons, which was kind of visualize that that's sort of the equivalent of the explosive power of the two uh, planes hitting the World Trade Center um, uh, up to, you know, uh, low kilotons in uh, ER with the uh, uh, 240. Then, of course, they have the uh, uh, still have some of the uh, 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 SS-21s, uh, Tochka, uh, in reserve, and they got uh, fired off a lot of uh, Iskander, but presumably they've kept uh, enough for at least a, a one launch and one reserve for the launchers that they've uh, uh, haven't. So, so they have a significant uh, tactical nuclear capability, not to mention then air delivered, uh, whether it's uh, uh, they tend to not pay much attention to uh, gravity bombs, but their cruise missiles and their uh, standoff missiles, both by air and, and sea. 
are all uh, have nuclear weapons associated with them. Um, in fact, sort of interesting, Russians uh, accuracy of Russian missile attacks in Ukraine, only about a third of them have been uh, conventionally accurate enough to really have high target damage. But another third of them, if they even had a 20 ton warhead on them, would have achieved the targeting uh, success. So because um, they just needed a, a bigger bang for that uh, by like a factor of three or four compared to the, 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 the bang that came from the conventional warhead. Um, they, ha they have them. And well, what happened is under Daddy Bush, we agreed to the mutual uh, unilateral uh, reduction in tactical nuclear weapons in which we got rid of everything. Got rid of nuclear artillery. We got rid of uh, 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 Lance. We got rid of. Uh, uh, so the only thing we kept essentially was uh, a couple hundred uh, B sixty one gravity bombs. <laughs> they're not even. They're not even standoff. Um, and yeah, you know, we have a couple hundred in Europe, maybe a couple hundred reserve back here, uh, and that's it. So there's this enormous asymmetry in in, in tactical nuclear capability. During the Cold War, we would have considered that uh, horrific. Uh, today, nobody seems to pay attention to it. Uh, and but uh, and I'm not saying that you have to match them on everything, but that is that that that, that is a reality that we have not paid much attention to. Uh, secondly, so now let's look at their side. Um, the what, you know, you say, well, what, 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 what were they, what, what, what's the target? What were the deal? Okay, well, they can do a symbolic, okay, so they do a symbolic hit, boom. Everybody, oh, oh, man, first time in, you know, since uh, Nagasaki, blah, blah, blah. And then the next day, you kind of go, okay, uh, what's next? In fact, symbolic hits kind of don't do much, I mean, other than symbolize it that the nuclear weapons haven't been uninvented. But other than that, they, they really haven't. Uh, uh, in fact, if anything, the fact that you didn't target a military target kind of implies a lack of, of will on your part. So then if you're going to use them tactically, you know, generally with nuclear artillery, we had concluded you want to use them in packages. Uh, yet one, one here, one off doesn't do a lot, but um, a series of them can, and they don't, if you're using very low yield, they don't dirty up the battlefield, they don't cause you. You know, um, and you can go, and then, of course, then there's uh, uh, targets further back. Um, and again, onesies don't buy you a lot. So then you sort of say, okay, well, okay, I'm going to do uh, hit the electrical grid. Uh, and that might be an interesting uh, uh, application of, um, of uh, some unique nuclear designs, because you can kind of get a lot more than just the bang um, from the, uh, the pulse. Um, and then you say, well, what else are you? Oh, well, maybe get the airfields. Uh, problem is the Ukrainian Air Force is so freaking small now, and, right. and they're dispersed. The Russians haven't been able to really take them out. Uh, and so, uh, uh, okay, then you'd have to kind of hit 20 airfields air because some of them are on civilian fields. And then, of course, some of those are in urban areas. Uh, and then all of a sudden now you're talking about, you know, um, uh, civilian casualties. So, so yeah, do they have options? Yes. I, I, I and, and, and when the, and I think the West needs to take those uh, seriously. And, and it's probably good that we don't specify 
is that we what our response would be. But I think it would be very, and I'm concerned that we haven't really seriously, uh, from a military perspective, uh, sat down and looked at what our response options would be so that you, we don't have to have a long debate or a long wait after it, but you can have a, a, whatever proportional response um, and have it ready to go. Uh, having a lag time, I think, is, is, um, is dangerous. Um, we uh, and and one of the things that we relied on was these weapons being used, and the answer would be there is no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapons use. It, it's we would view it as strategic, uh, whereas the Russians, as usual, are operating a gray seam and saying, "Well, you know, Ukraine's not an ally. I mean, we could drop it on them, and we're not, you know." Um, let me let me uh, let, let me just respond. We we can you can say people can say anything. But that's just, that doesn't happen to be true. In other words, uh, uh, that there are uh, uh, tactical applications to these. Maybe it has a strategic political effect, but but in terms of military effect, there are tactical applications. Exactly. And and and, and, and we have pretended that nuclear weapons don't count; that they basically don't exist. And I think that's going to be a very uh, going to need a very powerful reassessment on our part. And uh, and I was just conveying uh, what you know folks have been saying to, over the decades. Although I'm told that the nuclear posture review uh, does address uh, some of these issues specifically, we have one minute left, unfortunately, for a very big question. So from you know there, there's a sense that we're in the first stages of World War Three, if not you know what I mean. Just like World War One was different from World War Two, World War Three will be different. Uh, and certainly sides are lining up, democracies on one side, autocracies on the other, and then countries in the middle that are kind of moving around. Specifically, China is the leader now, right? As you said, bad strategy and Russians really have diminished their position. The Chinese could equally miscalculate because it is, it's an autocracy. Fundamentally, what are the lessons from this conflict we need to be learning vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese and getting ready for them? And conversely, what do you think the lessons are that the Chinese are learning from watching all of this? First, first comment, uh, do, don't talk. So I think too often, you see it with this administration uh, in Ukraine, we're talking about all the, uh, we're responding here, we're doing this, we're sending this. Uh, the other side sees it. Uh, and and it's, it's better to just uh, uh, be much more calm and and measure and say we are sending the appropriate stuff and and then they will see uh, the material at the other end I, I think that's really important not not to be running around braggadocio and, and so uh so i think that's that's extremely important uh i i i, I demur on the concept this is a the the a third world war because uh, then you say well what was the cold war so uh, to me this is the second strategic uh, uh conflict of the modern era, the first strategic conflict or competition—I'm uh, I mean, sorry, I mean competition—the first strategic competition was the Cold War. Uh, now we are in a second strategic competition, not exactly the same, but on the order of magnitude and the global scale that the last one was. And so I, I think it's, it's much more insightful and, and helpful to think about it in that context 
Could it lead to a third world war? Yeah. Uh, could the Cold War a uh, third war? Uh, if you're going to use the world war analogy to, to now, then you got to say it's the fourth one, not not the third. But anyway, I I, I think that the, the the focus needs to be on the competitive uh, nature of the conflict rather than just declaring it's a. Uh, I, I don't think you gain a lot, and I think. Um, you, you, but, but, uh, you, you lose the, the, the folk, foci which we ought to be, uh, 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 how we compete over the long term. One, one last comment on democracies. Uh, you know, from Thucydides on, uh, there's a kind of an implication that democracies don't handle long wars well. Uh, and and they, they intend to either lose the war or they lose their democracy or they lose both. So I think in, in putting together a competitive strategy, we need to be thinking about uh, how we sustain that and sustain that as a bipartisan effort here and then as an allied effort uh, with, with our friends. Uh, just very briefly in, in 15 seconds. So how does this end with Ukraine? How so, does this end? Yeah, so Canadian Lieutenant General retired uh, uh, Trevor Trudeau and I did a report for NATO on what Ukraine needs to uh, resecure their to do their counteroffensive and so forth. Uh, and uh, General Zeluzny, the uh, chief of the general staff and uh, Ukraine's uh, winniest general, General Zabrowski, uh, both picked up our, our report and, and, and publicly said uh, 2023, if they get the right help from the allies, but that requires uh, more armor support and requires more, uh, and it requires uh, 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 an air force. Um, I think it could go on, uh, it could end relatively rapidly if, if uh, uh, Russia implodes but I think that's only a possibility, not a probability. And it could also go on for four or five years or until Ukraine is totally exhausted and can't fight anymore. And unfortunately, the problem with Russia is it's a lot like the Terminator. Uh, you're either gonna kill it or it's gonna uh, kill you. Um, Phil, thanks very much again. Uh, honor and pleasure and look forward to having you on uh, again soon uh, to talk more strategy. Thanks so much. Thank you.